Up next, her murder stuns even hardened New Yorkers. It was a pretty horrific homicide, and we knew that the suspect perpetrator was still on the loose. We begin tonight with the latest developments in a crime that has shocked this unshockable city. The life cut short, way too short. That should have never happened. The killer has attempted to strip all identification from his victim. We didn't know the cause of death at that point. We didn't know who she was. I can't find out who killed you unless I know who you are. Detectives finally ID the dead woman and are led to a killer with a seemingly limitless capacity for violence. It's just beyond belief. It's like a Jack the Ripper kind of guy. You know, just absolute animals. from the glare of the lights and gleaming skyscrapers of New York City are some little-traveled byways, notorious to locals and to police, for being dirty, desolate, and dangerous. On Saturday, February 25th, 2006, a body turned up in one of those places, about 20 miles from downtown Manhattan. Well, yes, I found a DOA. It looks like a DOA on Seaview Avenue in Fountain. All right, it's in Brooklyn, right? Oh, yes. And I've seen him wrapped up in a sheet. All right. It was a male? Do you see? I don't see. I didn't see. It was a body? It looked like a body wrapped in a sheet, yes. All right, you want to leave a name and number, sir? Uh, no, I'd rather leave a name and number. I don't want to get involved. All right, sure. First responders came upon a horrific scene. The victim was a young female, probably in her 20s. This victim was naked and wrapped in a blanket and would, bat- would uh, twist ties behind her back, would... It basically uses handcuffs. The victim's head was wrapped with packing tape. Some sort of cloth had been shoved down her throat. A chunk of her hair had been cut away. One of a number of apparent attempts by her killer to cover up his crime. He knew enough on how to clean up the scene. He cut her fingernails down so there was no DNA underneath underneath her nails. There were no surveillance cameras in the area. There was no identification on the victim, but her body still gave investigators some basic information. What stood out to me is uh, she had specific tan lines on her, and she was Latino. So middle of February, in the cold, she either came, just came from somewhere warm or was not from the area originally. A snowbrush was found near the body. No one was sure if this had anything to do with the murder, 48 hours after the body was found, a woman called police to say her friend, Emmet St. Guillen, had gone missing. And one thing she said was that Emmet had just returned from Florida uh, the night before, you know, the day before she went missing. And that immediately struck a chord with the detective because there was a tan. Tonight, the sad irony New York's top detectives are furiously investigating her murder as they search for a killer on the loose. 24-year-old Emmet St. Guillen, a Boston native, was two months away from a graduate degree in criminal justice. She was fabulous, fabulous young woman. It's a tremendous loss. In this case, when a child dies, you die. There's a part of you that will never, ever be resurrected again. 
The Met's autopsy made it clear her murder was even more gruesome than first responders originally thought. There was definitely damage to her um, private areas, uh, indicating it would seem as though there was a forcible sex crime of some sort going on. I believe it was a sock that was in her mouth actually pushed her tongue in backwards. That was the cause of death. So we're not looking for a weapon. We're not looking for ballistic evidence in this type of case. Incredibly, no foreign DNA was found on the body. Assaulting his victim and then removing all his DNA from her body would have taken hours, which meant Emmett's killer had to have a safe place to do all this. And that location wasn't where her body was found. It was so time-consuming with the, the zip ties and the wrapping and the, and the cords and the blanket and the tape. It'd be too much time for the person to do it there. If this case was going to be solved, detectives needed to find out not only who did the murder, but also where he did it. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Investigators were stunned to find that Emmett St. Gien's killer was able to remove all foreign DNA from her body. But he couldn't remove everything. The tape and blanket used to wrap her body were rich sources of trace evidence. Analyst Nick Petraco found red carpet fibers on both cheap-colored nylon fiber, uh, uh, carpet fibers. And I happen to know what those red rug fibers look like on that particular carpet because I've seen that kind of carpet many times in casework. Petraco's microscopic search also revealed animal hairs. I'm finding mink hair, so there's a mink coat around there somewhere. Rabbit hairs of the type used in coats were also found. A tiny drop of blood was found on one of the plastic ties used as handcuffs. And some DNA was recovered from the snow brush found near the victim's body. The sample that came off of the snow brush was touch DNA. And so that is basically DNA that is deposited when someone handles an item. Analysts paid particular attention to the blanket that wrapped the body, hitting it with ultraviolet light in an attempt to expose possible bodily fluids. And in a major potential break, what turned out to be a semen stain luminesced when hit with the light. The semen profile was very degraded, so we knew right away that the semen profile was likely to be pretty old. Detectives now turned to Emmett's final night. It was a Friday, just days away from her 25th birthday, and she was celebrating with friends, including her best friend, Claire. And it was getting late in the night. It was almost like 4 o'clock in the morning. They had been on vacation. Claire was ready to go home. Come on, Emmett, let's go. Ahmed wasn't ready to go. Claire's trying to almost pull her in the cab and convince her to go home. Ahmed doesn't want any part of it, and she starts to walk down the block. 
Police hoped surveillance cameras would give them some idea of where Emmett went. These days, they're on practically every street corner and every shop. Not so in 2006. And so they got no video of any help in determining where she went. But by tracing Emmett's credit card activity, detectives found she paid for two drinks at a bar called The Falls. The receipt was... Uh, recorded within 15 minutes of 4 a.m., just before bars in New York City required to close. This would be 17 hours from when her body was found. Detectives needed to find out what happened during this window and face some daunting problems. There were multiple crime scenes. At some point, Emmett's killer needed to subdue her, and no one knew where that happened. He took his time to assault her, kill her, and remove his DNA from her body. Where that happened, no one knew. And he most likely needed a vehicle to get to and from all these spots. And no one knew where that vehicle was. There was really very little evidence to point in any direction. The investigation is really just the body at that point. You don't have any items or location that you can focus on or use in investigating that crime. Detectives hoped people at Emmett's last known location, the Falls Bar, could provide some answers, but got yet another setback. First of all, do they have any video? They don't have any video inside. But the bartender at the Falls remembered Emmett. She told detectives closing time was four o'clock, and Emmett wasn't ready to go. And she didn't want to leave because she still paid for her drinks. This bartender said her boss, bar manager Danny Dorian, saw what was happening and told the bartender to get a bouncer to escort Emmett from the bar. But Danny Dorian denied that ever happened. Danny Dorian was not very forthcoming initially. He claimed not to have any recollection of her. And I remember the detectives coming back, and they're like, yeah, we went there, we spoke to this guy, Danny Dorian, and we think he's holding back on something. And I just remember thinking, wait a minute, Dorian? I, I know that name. Why do I know that name? It turned out that in New York City, a lot of people knew the Dorian name. Dorian is a famous name in New York City. There's the eerie connection between that falls and another infamous New York watering hole, the one where preppy killer Robert Chambers met his victim. In 1986, 20-year-old Robert Chambers was arrested for the murder of his girlfriend, 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. It became infamous as the Preppy murder case. It was the highest profile case in New York, probably in that entire decade. And everyone knew the name Dorian. Why? Because the last place Jennifer Levin was seen alive was at a bar owned by Danny Dorian's family. Was there a possible connection with this latest high profile murder? No one knew. But one thing not in question was that Danny Dorian bar manager of the last place Emmett Sanguian was seen alive, was telling police a story they did not believe. In the 1980s, a New York family, the Dorians, got caught up in the infamous preppy murder case. They owned the bar where the victim spent her final night. Now, 
in 2006, there was a possible connection to yet another gruesome murder. The Dorian family's bar, The Falls, was the last place murder victim Emmet St. Guillen was seen alive, and bar manager Danny Dorian told police he'd never laid eyes on her. That wasn't what police heard from people working the bar, and that was a big problem for Danny Dorian. We get a phone call to report to police headquarters right away to the chief of detective's office. Now, the, it's very strange to get a phone call like that, especially in the middle of a case. So we get there, and it turns out it was Danny Dorian and his attorney. Turns out he did know that she was there. He doesn't know how she died, but he's now able to put her there in the bar. Danny Dorian's problem wasn't any connection to the murder. He was alibied. His problem was his bouncer, Daryl Littlejohn. Danny Dorian was not a good bar manager, and the evidence that he was not a good bar manager is who he hired to be his bouncer, or one of his bouncers, which was Daryl Littlejohn, and he did so without any attempt to uh, check his references and see how legitimate or not he was. 41-year-old Littlejohn was a convicted felon. He'd served more than eight years for robbery and drug offenses. So he violated his parole. He should not have been working in any place that sells liquor, and he should not have been working at 4 o'clock in the morning while he's on parole. Littlejohn told police that on Emmett's last night, he did what his boss, Danny Dorian, told him to do. He got her out of the bar. This made him the last known person to see her alive. Now that caused the police to obviously take an interest in him. Because Little John violated his parole, detectives had no problem getting a search warrant. The trail left by his cell phone on the morning of the murder put him at his house and, ominously, near where Emmett's body was dumped. Does that mean that he killed her? No. But it means now he's at the crime scene where we found Emmett. So now everything is now focusing on Little John. Police here in New York now say they've got compelling evidence connecting a barroom bouncer to the murder of this promising young woman who spent her final hours at his bar. Trace evidence teams descended on the home Little John shared with his mother and also his van, searching for anything that could be tied back to Amet's body. One of the first things that the crime scene investigators noticed was about a dozen empty bleach bottles in the garbage outside the house. What do you use a dozen empty bottles of bleach for? Well, if you know how to destroy DNA evidence, you know bleach does it. Every inch of the house and van was searched. Incredibly, just as with Emmett's body, no foreign DNA was found. Absolutely no DNA. So we don't find any evidence that shows that she was there at all. If Daryl Littlejohn was Emmett's killer, he'd done an unusually thorough job of cleaning multiple crime scenes. But a forensic dogma called the Locard Exchange Principle, it dates back more than 100 years to the very beginning of crime scene investigation, holds that it's impossible to completely clean a crime scene. If you go back to your guy named Edmund Locard, a doctor from France, his principle states that there's always materials to be found. Someone always leaves something. Ultimately, what it's saying is, you don't find it means you. it's your fault. It's there. And sure enough, tiny clues remained that finally told the story 
of what happened to Emmett St. Guillen. Among the key pieces of trace evidence recovered from Emmett St. Guillen's crime scene were red carpet fibers and animal hairs from a mink and a rabbit. You're trying to use these bits of evidence to help you figure out where it happened. Once Daryl Littlejohn emerged as a suspect, crime scene techs were on the lookout for these hairs and fibers. That's the beauty of this stuff, and it helps you reconstruct the whole event. It's really powerful. One red carpet fiber by itself would mean a lot. But you get two, three different materials that are all associating one place means a lot more mathematically as far as probability it happened there. When Daryl Littlejohn's house and minivan were searched, a red carpet was found inside the house, and fibers from it were microscopically consistent with fibers from the dump site. Littlejohn's mother, who lived with him, owned a mink coat, and those hairs were also consistent as were hairs from a coat of hers with a rabbit fur collar. And there were also shoes he had. On the bottom of the shoes, there were red carpet fibers attached to it. That's probably how they got into the van. Mother probably wore the mink coat to go to church on Sunday, and she leaves a couple of hairs from the mink coat on the seat. This evidence definitively tied Daryl Littlejohn to a Met's body. But there was a problem. So far... Prosecutors could only prove that he'd gotten rid of Emmett's corpse, not that he'd committed her murder. It created, or it left, some degree of doubt as to whether he was actually the killer. And Daryl Littlejohn, who had a very good lawyer, said he was no killer. I'm truly, I'm truly sorry what happened to this young lady, but they have the wrong person. Forensic analysts now turn to the degraded semen stain on the blanket used to cover Emmett's body. The DNA results delivered a bombshell. And I took another look at the semen sample and thought it looks similar to Daryl Littlejohn's DNA, similar enough that it could be a relative. Now, as it turns out, Daryl had a brother who did die while in custody in the Queen's House of Detention, awaiting trial on a double murder. He died of some sort of asthma attack. This happened 11 years earlier, which would account for why the sample was so degraded. They've, they've also tested, I understand, the blanket in which Emet's body was wrapped. What have you learned about those tests? There was semen on the blanket, but unfortunately, the semen on the blanket was somebody else's. But in the end, just as a famous French criminalist stated nearly a century earlier, you can't completely clean a crime scene. The touch DNA from the snowbrush near Emmett's body matched Littlejohn. But it was the trace evidence, what analysts call innocent transfer, that linked Littlejohn to Emmett's body. All of this was confirmed when his DNA was lifted from a small blood stain on one of the zip ties. It remained, despite what even analysts admit, was an incredible job of attempting to clean the scene. He might be thinking about blood and semen and spittle and that kind of thing. Or it was even his hairs. But he's not thinking about the stuff that's around him all the time, the red carpet, the mink coat. He's not thinking about that stuff. And that's the stuff that ultimately helps to nail him. Investigators believe that when Little John was told to get Emmett out of the bar, he'd found an easy mark. She'd had a lot to drink, 
the streets were nearly empty. Once outside, he subdued her and got her into his van. Where he took her next is the subject of speculation. What's clear is that he spent hours assaulting her, then bleaching her body and the scene. But he was unaware of the fibers and animal hairs that had simply become part of his environment, all of which stuck to his victim. It appears that at some point in this assault, Emmet might have fought back. It's possible she injured Little John and his DNA got on her hair. That could be the reason he cut part of her hair away. He also cut her nails in another attempt to eliminate DNA. Now, with the murder done and the cleanup apparently complete, he had to get rid of the body. Soon he was outside, exposed, and in a hurry to get away. The snowbrush from inside his van with his DNA got tangled up with the body as he dumped it. But a small blood stain on the zip tie left absolutely no doubt he was the killer. In June of 2009, Daryl Littlejohn was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life without parole, all on the strength of evidence he tried to clear away but never saw. No one walking into that bar would have had any reason to think they were going to meet their killer that night, whether intoxicated or sober. It really is a, a case that's totally made by forensic evidence. So between the phone records, the DNA, and the hair and fiber evidence, together that's a trifecta of evidence that is the thing that proved him guilty. 